Let's pray together. Blessed Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open your word to us today. In the name of Jesus, amen. We've got two readings. The first one is Jeremiah 31 and verse 20. This is God speaking to his people in response to their plea for forgiveness. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he the child I delight in? As often as I speak against him, I still remember him. Therefore, I am deeply moved for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. And the second reading is from Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 5. You were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once lived, following the course of this world, following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work amongst those who are disobedient. All of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following the desires of flesh and senses, and we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Hear the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. If I haven't met you before, my name is Susan. I became a Christian when I was in school in Singapore. I was about 16 or 17, and I was a studious, hardworking student who always did well at school. But then things started to change when I got to year 10. I started to fall behind in classes, and I lost my motivation to study. During that period of time, I felt like I was disappointing my teachers and my parents, and I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. It was during this period of time that I learned more about God. I was invited to a youth service. I was initially very hesitant because I didn't know much about Christianity and God. It was also a Saturday afternoon, and I had to take public transport to the church, which was an hour away. But when I got there, I was surprised to see that the people there were different from the people I knew at school. They were friendly, they were kind, they seemed to genuinely care about me. They didn't care about where I was studying or what grades I was getting. They just wanted to get to know me as a person. One of my observations by going to that particular youth service was that those people had something that I did not have at that particular time. They had joy. Joy, as I understood it then, long-lasting happiness. They were happy and they were content, even though they were going through the same pressures and challenges that I was going through as a year 10 student. 
I could not understand how they would feel joy. What is life's big purpose? What else can we do besides study hard and get good grades and go to a good university and get a nice paying job and buy a big house and get a nice car? Their attitude towards God demonstrated to me that attaining those things and a continuous striving are not their life's purposes. They believe in a God who has deep mercy on them, their failures, their unloveliness, their disappointments. Their God had a plan to prosper them and not to harm them, a plan that gave them hope and a future. And most importantly, that God loves them that was one of the most foundational truths I was exposed to before I became a Christian. I wanted that joy. I wanted to experience that mercy. And I wanted to know their God. So when I first came to God and asked for his forgiveness, I was not perfect. I did not have all of my ducks in a row. I was completely lost in life's direction. Yet God embraced me and called me his child. And today, I am still not perfect. I still make mistakes, sometimes big, sometimes small. But I know that God loves me and forgives me because he is a God that is rich in mercy. I hope as I share from Ortland's book from chapters 19 to 21, Gentle and Lowly, you will be equally encouraged to know that God, the God we call Saviour and King, is a God that is rich in mercy. Before we delve deep into God's character of being rich in mercy, we need to understand where this mercy is used and how it affects us as children of God. Verses 1 to 3 starts off really dark, but stay with me. Let us examine these words from Paul. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. From reading this passage, I think we can clearly see that Paul's diagnosis of us is that we are dead. Paul says we are dead twice. Dead here not in terms of moral or physical death, but spiritually death. We can see in verse 1, we were following the ways of this world. We were following the ruler of the kingdom of the air. In verse 2, we were gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. We can see that we were not physically dead in the sense that we could not have sinned, but rather we cannot see or feel the glory of Christ that we continue to live spiritually enslaved to sin. We are spiritually dead, unresponsive to God. 
Paul is referring to how we were following the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We lived in our fleshly passions. We rejected God. We enthrone ourselves. We carry sin in our word, thought, and deed. And if we can understand our sin, and here I'm not talking about how we might understand it as, I messed up, I made a mistake, I'm struggling with, but something that is comprehensive, enveloping, relentless, we're not just occasionally messing up, we are ridden with sin. We enjoyed living in sin. We wanted to live in sin. And if we take, take the language of Ephesians 2, we are dead. If you're a careful reader of scripture, you may have noticed some pronoun changes happening in these verses. Paul starts with, you were dead, before shifting to we in verse 3. The context of his writing becomes important in understanding how might this passage apply to someone who has grown up in the church and lives a morally righteous life. Here Paul is saying, even himself, a Jewish kinsman, had the law of God, yet it was of no advantage to him as he too lived in the passions of the flesh. Paul signals to us that Jew and Gentile find themselves in the same predicament, deserving of God's wrath. I remember when Denise preached on to the uttermost, we wondered where Jesus is now. We discussed the need of Jesus' ongoing ministry where he intercedes for us and advocates for us. As believers of Christ, we know that when we are before God the Father against the prosecutor Satan, we can't plead not guilty. It is simply not an option. In a world where we can barely live to our own standards, we fall significantly short of God's perfect standard. We were by our nature bad. We are selfish. We are self-centered. We are demanding. We sometimes feel like it's everyone else's fault but ours. And this deserves God's wrath. Our very nature, our very being is against God, that only his holy anger is a natural and right response to us. In John 3, 19 to 20, we read, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But God broke in. What Paul shows us is that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us so that our sins are absolved, so that our debts are paid, so that death is defeated. Paul does not show the grace of God until he has made it inescapably clear the desperate need and universal sinfulness of man. And such was the plight of mankind. In contrast to the sinfulness of man and meeting that sinfulness comes the fact of God's love and the action that springs from his pity. He is not only merciful for showing his pity to those who are totally unworthy and undeserving, he is rich in mercy. Mercy is known in the Bible as a compassionate, 
or deep abiding love that withholds punishment even though we, we rightly deserve it. In the Old Testament, we see God's mercy from the beginning in the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they immediately recognized their sinfulness. They realized they were naked and deserving of punishment. But God's immeasurable mercy, the man and the woman were saved by grace through faith in God's word. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. In the New Testament, we see God's mercy when he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins. This is the ultimate demonstration of God's mercy. He loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us, despite our sin and rebellion. We read in verses 4 and 5, But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. God is never described as rich in the whole Bible, but for being rich in mercy. It does not say God who became rich in mercy, but rather God who is rich in mercy. This tells us about his being and his nature. I really appreciated Ortland's explanation of this. He said, if mercy was something God possessed, then there would be a limit on how much mercy he could hand out. But if he is essentially merciful, then for him to pour out mercy is for him to act in accord to who he is. It is simply for him to be God. The biggest encouragement I have found in reading Ortland's Gentle and Lowly is the unwavering confidence Ortland has towards God. No matter what comes our way, be it worry, anxiety, fear, restlessness, brokenness, and conflict, Ortland had a profound confidence in his God because of God's love, God's rich in mercy, and the knowledge that exists both in his head and his heart that God has made us one of his own and he will never cast us out. In Galatians 2.20 we read, The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. For the God we know could not sit still in heaven and watch us be tormented with sin. Some of you may have heard that one of my co-workers, S, recently became a Christian. S comes from a complicated family life. She was raised in an abusive home, and prior to being reborn, she was deeply traumatized by her family history and her family's relationship with the church. From a young age, she was taught that she was unworthy of God's love and that she can never be loved by God because she's a sinner. Growing up, S hung out with some really terrible people. She fell into alcohol and drug addictions and developed a severe eating disorder. Due to her childhood, even though she's now 46, she was still struggling with PTSD, depression, anxiety and panic attacks until very recently. In the lead up to Easter this year, 
S was going through some really hard times. She tried to end her life, but God spoke to her and showed her a vision of her future. On Good Friday, while she was driving to the church down her street, God directed her to the church at the corner of the traffic light. She went into the church without knowing anyone or anything, but God worked through his people and the pastor there prayed for her that Good Friday. She felt so deeply touched by God that every word in the, in the, in the sermon she thought was God's message for her, directed at her. It was then she found her way back to God. It was the first time in a long time that she felt the Holy Spirit move in her. On Sunday, she went back to the same church and committed her life to God through water baptism. A different person rose out of the water. S finally found her peace and she believes she truly died in the water. Her old self stripped away and a new person is born. Since then, S has not suffered from any more PTSD symptoms, nor has she had any more panic attacks. Her anorexia is improving, and she feels the healthiest she has ever been. Even her psychiatrist is amazed at the change in her. She is truly healed. S is now looking to attend Bible College next year with a particular focus on reaching troubled youth in her neighbourhood. She is a living example of how God's mercy reaches us when we are imperfect and how one's heart can be transformed from a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. From Ortland's writing and from Essa's story, we can see that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of rich mercy. God's mercy does not just exist in the pages of the Bible we read, but it has a life-changing impact I've witnessed through S's life. God's mercy is not passive and waiting for us, but is active and transformative. When I see the transformation in S's life, I am awestruck by God's mercy and love. I feel convicted that my God is a merciful God who will never run out of mercy. And it encourages me to look to him in my most downcast moments. God's mercy to us is not something far away and distant. Rather, God's heart took shape as a man when we look at Jesus. When we read the Gospels, we see how Jesus is rich in mercy by the way he talks, by the way he conducts himself towards sinners, and by the way he interacts with sufferers. In the book of Matthew, we read about Jesus dining with the tax collectors and sinners. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. God's rich mercy, therefore, is experienced not just from the one act of sending his son to the cross and dying in our place, 
but Jesus' whole life ministry where God sent his only son to live with the frailness of humanity. Through his son, he drew near to us when we hated him. Will he remain distant now that we hope we can please him? He eagerly suffered for us when we were failing as orphans. Will he cross his arms over our failures now that we are his adopted children? His heart was gentle and lowly toward us when we were lost. Will his heart be anything different toward us now that we are found? While we were still, he loved us in our mess then, he'll love us in our mess now. So where to from here? Daniel chapter 9 verse 9 says, The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. If you're not a Christian, I hope that by being here today has made you realize that God is not a God who will love you when you become perfect. The God I'm talking to you about loved me in my imperfection and continues to love me today. If you were like the teenage me walking into that Saturday youth service wanting to be a part of this, please come to me after the service at the front and we would love to get to know you and pray for you. If you call yourself a child of God this morning, let us be reminded that we are created in Christ's image to bear witness to the truth. God loves mercy and teaches his followers to be merciful just as God is merciful. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus goes on to say that we are to forgive others, just as God has forgiven us. When we are merciful to others, we are showing them the same mercy that God has shown us. Let us be encouraged by the words in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God.